Hello and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst and I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, recently we started a new series called Sticking to the Gospel and last sermon was from bad news and then we kind of finished it there. So now we're going on to the second week which is to good news. So from the bad news to the good news. And then as we continue in this series, you're going to see how it continues to unfold in sort of a chronological way in terms of how the gospel unfolds in our lives um, and how it works really in, in all of our lives together. It's not just this individualistic thing that we tend to think it might be. Uh, there is an element of that, uh, but the gospel actually begins to seep into every part of our lives. You're going to hear more about that as we unpack this sermon series. Really thankful that you're listening to the podcast. I hope you have subscribed to it so that you can continue to be updated with both the sermons, Table Talk Thursdays, and eventually we want to continue to create more content. And so if you have any uh, thing, any subject matter that you would like to learn more about, you can email me and my email is in the show page notes. And then also I want to invite you to contribute to Life Church, uh, the work of Life Church that we get to be a part of. Your giving can make a uh, transformative impact in the lives of other people as well. So uh, thank you for listening. Without further ado, here is Pastor Daniel with our sermon, Sticking to the Gospel, Two Good News. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Daniel, and I am one of the pastors here at Life Church Canton. I'm excited to be with you this morning, and I'm glad that you are here with us this morning. So I want to welcome all of our first-time guests and our return guests. We are delighted that you are here worshiping with us, um, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you would let us know that you are here by typing I'm new in the comments section so we can see how we can serve you now and in the future. So I want to welcome Life Church family, say hello to you guys. Uh, we think of you often, and we pray for you often. And we look forward to the time when we are able to fellowship together again in person. And God willing, that will be soon. But until then, we are thankful that we have the privilege and the opportunity to still stay connected, albeit electronically. Well, last week we kicked off our last, our new series, uh, Sticking to the Gospel. A series that is designed to explain the gospel and to explore its implications for our lives. Last week, Pastor Nathan kicked off the series by sharing three important reasons why some Christians and some churches no longer stick to the gospel. I encourage you to look those up as they are helpful to help us be able to stick to the gospel. Well, today we're going to continue on that. We're going to continue to unpack the gospel. And to do this, we'll be camping out in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Let's read what God's word has to say. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that you are faithful. Faithful is your name, as some would say. 
Now, God, we pray that you would faithfully attend to us even now. Let the spirit of the living God will take the word of the living God to show and reveal the living God himself, that we may understand your gospel deeply and that all things may be done to your glory. And wherever you are, all God's people say amen. Well, I'm excited to be unpacking more of the gospel. Our scripture this morning is found in Paul's epistle, Paul's letter to the church of God in Rome, the ancient city of Rome. Paul writes this letter that many consider to be the most comprehensive and systematic statement of the Christian faith. It's a robust treatment on Christian doctrine, on what we believe as Christians. Paul writes to inform the Roman Christians of the basics of the gospel. Now, by basic, I'm referring to the foundational and formative nature of the gospel to our faith in God. You see, the gospel is the central theme of the book of Romans. Paul spends 16 chapters unpacking the gospel and its implications for daily life. This letter contains essential teachings and principles of the Christian faith. In fact, I can say this with confidence that if you've not read the book of, of, of Romans, if you've not walked through the book of Romans or digested the book of Romans, then your understanding of the gospel is at best incomplete. And at worst, your understanding is incorrect. So I strongly encourage you, even after we're done, to read this letter that God has written to show and display his righteousness, our need for him. You see, the truths that are found in this letter are always relevant, but even more so now. In an age where even Christians are in disagreement over what the gospel is and what implications it has for life, I think it's important, it's crucial that we return back to the basics of the gospel. And Paul lays this out in this letter. It's important for us to return back to the originator of the gospel, God himself, to see what he has to say about the gospel, what the gospel means and its impact on our lives. Well, this brings us to our text this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. These two verses serve as the thesis statement of the entire book of Romans, and they capture the very heart of the gospel. Additionally, these two verses, we see Paul's reasons for proclaiming the gospel, for being proud of the gospel, for being unashamed of the gospel. And God willing, we're going to spend our time this morning unpacking those two reasons because they're foundational to our correct understanding of the gospel. And so first we will see in verse 16, the first thing that we will see is God's, that the gospel is God's power to rescue humanity. This is God's power. This is God's strength. This is God's ability. This is what God does powerfully to rescue humanity. Secondly, in verse 17, we will see that the gospel is God's provision to right humanity. This is God's corrective to humanity. Let's unpack that first reason. Verse 16 says, I am unashamed, for I am unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. You see, as this letter transitions from the opening, from the salutation, from the introduction section, where Paul greets the recipients and explains his, his apostleship, Paul now moves quickly to declare that I am unashamed of the gospel. 
which begs the question, what is the gospel? Because before we understand that he's unashamed of it, we need to know what the gospel is. This word here, the gospel, it's euangelion. It's used over 60 times, even in this letter alone. Paul simply uses this to mean the good news, the good announcement. It's an official announcement back in those days from a, from a king, a ruler, or even an emperor. And so in those days, the herald, the town herald, or the spokesperson for the town would start every official announcement with the word euangelion, the gospel. This is good news. It's a favorable announcement from the king, such as it could be a, a birth of a son or the marriage of a king's daughter or even the foregoing of taxes and debts that are owed to the king. As Paul uses it here, it's not good news from a human emperor, a human ruler. It is good news from the divine God of all creation. The gospel is the announcement that God has forgiven the sins of people, that God has delivered us from death and judgment and has given us an eternal hope. And he's given that to all who would hear this good news and accept it. It comes not only as a gracious offer from God, but as a command to obey, to listen to, to live into. The gospel is good news that God loved us so much, he demonstrates it through the sacrifice of his son, the saving sacrifice of his son. You see, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the good news now, to be unashamed here, uh, Paul uses a word that has to do with a feeling of fear or disgrace, enough to keep you from doing something. So what about the gospel could Paul be ashamed of? What could cause Paul to even be tempted to be ashamed, that he would have to declare that I am unashamed of the gospel? Well, perhaps it's the fact that he had not visited the church of Rome yet. He'd not been there to share the gospel with them, to live with them, to encourage them. And so some people may see that as some sense of, of lack of dedication to the gospel. And he speaks to this in verse 13 when he informs them that I have longed to come see you. I've desired to be with you, to impart the gospel to you, but I had not had the opportunity. But I think something deeper is at foot here. I think Paul is alluding to something deeper that he speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to some, and to others it is offensive. You see, for some, the very idea, the very belief in the existence of God is foolishness, let alone the triune God of the universe who created human beings in his image and for his purpose. And even for others, the exclusivity of Christ the exclusivity of the God of the Bible and his truth is offensive and serves as a hindrance, keeping them from the very God who can save them. In Paul's day and in our day, there are many reasons, a plethora of reasons, why society tells us we should be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel by its very nature is scandalous and offensive. It is offensive because it robs us of any sense of self-righteousness and self-pride or self-sufficiency. The gospel and its assertions make us uncomfortable because it robs us of any sense, any false sense of confidence in our own goodness, and it causes us to face our sinful nature. This can dampen even the most lively of hearts. And so what do we do? We choose not to engage the gospel or share it with other people. The fear of rejection, the fear of losing comforts and losing friends has caused even the most well-meaning pastors to compromise the gospel, to be quiet about the implications of the gospel for the sake of the preference of their congregation and even the preference of a fallen world. They shrink back from the gospel. 
I have a question for you. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Think about that. Are you reluctant to share the gospel for fear of being rejected or seen as foolish or seen as offensive? Does your desire to make people not feel uncomfortable, does that desire override and trump your desire to see them saved and freed? If I were to ask Paul those same questions, his answer would be a resounding no. He says that in verse 16, I am unashamed of the gospel. And folks, if anybody had a reason to be ashamed of the gospel, a legitimate reason, if you will, it was Paul. If anybody had a reason to shrink back from the gospel, it was Paul. He was in prison multiple times for the gospel. He was chased out of towns and cities and smuggled out of towns for the gospel. He was ridiculed and laughed at for the gospel. He was called a fool for the gospel, labeled a lunatic for the gospel, even stoned and left for dead for the gospel. If anyone had a reason to shrink back from the gospel, it was Paul. But through it all, Paul remained eager to preach the gospel wherever and whenever. Talk about wherever it takes us and whatever it takes. Paul was willing to preach the gospel even in Rome, the very center of the world's political power and the center of pagan religion. Paul is unashamed of the gospel. Nothing could stop Paul from proudly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not ridicule, not criticism, not physical harm or persecution could curb his enthusiasm. Nothing could stop Paul. He was unstoppable. But why, Paul? Why would you risk life and limb for the gospel? Well, the answer is simple. Look at the second half of verse 16. Because it's the power of God for salvation. You see, the gospel, as our first point says, is God's power to rescue humanity. This is the good news that the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God, used his power to save us who put our trust in him. And what good news indeed. But before you go too far, good news assumes that there was first bad news. You see, if a team of firefighters show up at your home, break into your house, and start hosing off your house, that's only good news if there was a fire to begin with. If there's no fire in your house, it's an expensive bill for no reason. But if your house was on fire, you were excited to see them. You see, similarly, God saving us is only good news if we needed saving in the first place. And oh, how we needed saving. You see, beyond the countless harmful and heinous acts that we commit against each other daily, you and I have sinned against a perfect and holy God, a God who made us to reflect his glory and to serve his purpose. We have all rejected him and become our own gods. And as a perfect, just God, he must judge sin. But I'm glad that the bad news ends there. But God in his mercy place the sin of humanity on Christ, who through his perfect life, death, and resurrection willingly satisfied the judgment of God on my behalf. That's an amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord moment if I've ever seen one. That he didn't leave me in the bad news, but he brought me to this gospel, this euangelion, this good news that he has freed me. You see, the gospel is the good news that the power of God through Christ's sacrifice has saved me from the penalty and the power of sin because I could not and would not save myself. The gospel is God's salvation to all people who would believe. It transcends race, tribes, education, and socioeconomic status. 
All who would receive it, whether Greek or Jew, whether white or black, all benefit from the gospel. You see, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is level. Tribes meet. Races embrace. Humanity finds unity and equality in Christ. At the foot of the cross, we are all equal. So for any so-called Christian to keep the good news of the gospel, to keep God's salvation and its implications from people based on race, based on socioeconomic status or any other category, is to corrupt the gospel and to deny their own salvation because we are all saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by our actions, not by anything we've ever done because all we've ever done was contribute to the sin that killed Christ. Salvation that is proclaimed in the gospel is available to all who believe. What does it mean to believe? It means to trust in, to entrust yourself onto God, to rely on him. The word here is always typically in the present tense, which means that the gospel, the belief in the gospel, the faith in God is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing event. It's an ongoing condition. It's a continual reliance on God to save me, to save me in the future, to save me now, to have saved me. It's the already yet part of the gospel that he, we, are, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So all who continue to put their trust in God and not in their own ability to save themselves. These are the ones who are saved. These are the ones who understand it doesn't matter how good I am. I could never be good enough to match the standard of a perfect and holy God. This is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because it contains the very power of God to rescue humanity from our just consequences. And Paul knew all too well the power of the gospel personally. This is why Paul is unashamed because he has experienced this power and the power of the gospel evoked in him a never-ending desire to see others know that power, be delivered by that power, be freed by that power from the power and the penalty of sin. Paul is unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to rescue and you should not be either. You and I should no longer be afraid to share, to live out the gospel, to know the gospel, because it's God's power to rescue. It's God's power to save. Question for you. When you think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you've been saved from your sins, do you only remember the good news or do you also remember the bad news? Do you remember what you've been saved from and who you've been saved to? This brings us to the second reason why Paul is unashamed of the gospel. He is secondly unashamed of the gospel because it's God's provision to right humanity. Look at verse 17. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, what are you up to? What do you mean the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? You see this phrase, the righteousness of God, uh, it's what we call a genitive of source. It means that God is the source of the righteousness. It means that this is a righteousness that comes from God. It's better translated as righteousness from God is revealed. It's best 
it, this word righteousness can also be translated as justice. And so when we talk about God's justice, we talk about God's righteousness, that he makes things right. He is the standard of rightness. God isn't looking out there for a standard to match. He himself is the standard that everything else must bend to. This word is a legal term. It's the act of a judge to declare someone as innocent. But not because they are not guilty, but because the court shows them mercy. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of justification. It's the biblical teaching that God considers sinners right or righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness of our own, or as Paul would say it, there is none who is righteous. All have sinned and come short of the standard of God. If you've been married long enough, you see unrighteousness daily. You see imperfections daily. Look just a little bit at your life and realize that if the standard is perfection, we fail it every day. This is a humbling truth and one that should evoke in us a sense of gratefulness to God and a sense of graciousness to other people because we are just as bad as they are, that we could be, that all it takes is the right trigger sometimes to cause us to act quote-unquote, out of character. In other words, we are hopeless without God, unable and unwilling to think and live righteously, and we are destined for duly deserved judgment. So not only do we need God to save us from the just penalty of our sin, but we also need God to impute on us or to give to us his righteousness. And he does this in Christ. He exchanges Christ's righteousness for our unrighteousness. This is what we call the doctrine of double imputation or what's called the great exchange. To impute simply means to credit. Next time you go in the store and they say debit or credit, you say impute. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't do that. The doctrine of double imputation is the biblical teaching that our sins, my sins, have been credited to Christ's account as though he lived my sinful life. And Christ's righteousness has been credited to my account as though I lived his perfect life. And this righteousness, Paul says, is from faith to faith. What do you mean, Paul? Paul simply means here that the righteousness that we see in the gospel, the righteousness that is received by faith in the gospel cannot be obtained or maintained by works or deeds or actions. It is simply trusting. You got saved by trusting. You stay saved by trusting. And finally, you will be saved by trusting. This is why Paul writes the whole book of Galatians to let you know that the same way you got saved is the same way you stay saved. Keep trusting God. It's a continual reliance on God and not ourselves question for you. Do you see the gospel and your faith in God as a one-time event? Or do you continually rehearse its truths daily as you go through life? Folks, we never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is not some elementary class that we take and we're done. The gospel is for the elementary, the high school, the postgraduate, and the post-postgraduate. In fact, when we get to heaven, we will still be talking about the gospel. This is an external righteousness that God gives us, one that we cannot earn. It is the free gift of God. And the very faith itself to believe in God, Ephesians chapter 2, comes from God. The gospel robs us of any self-righteousness. 
True saving faith is the gracious, supernatural gift of God, and it produces in us a new heart and makes us justified right with God. I've heard some people say justified means just as if I hadn't sinned. No, no, no. It's that you have sinned, but he's given you Christ's righteousness. This is why Paul quotes Habakkuk. He says that the righteous shall live by faith. You see, in contrast to the proud, self-reliant, the self-righteous, those who have received God's righteousness are preserved by their faith in God and their faithfulness to God. This is the core of God's message through Habakkuk over 2,000 years ago. And folks, it's still true today. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we've never been good enough. We never will be. But God, being full of mercy, has made us righteous through his gospel, which is God's provision to right humanity. Justification or righteousness from God, it's the legal act of God whereby the this repentant sinner is declared right by God and then brought into relationship with God, which then results in right living. God makes you right so you can be right. You don't come to God after you've become right. I know people say that all the time. I, I want to come to Jesus, but I got to get my life together. No, you come to Jesus to get your life together. Question for you. Do you rely on your own actions and deeds to save you, to make you right with God? Are you convinced that apart from God, you're a righteous person? Even as a Christian, do you find yourself working hard for salvation? Trying hard to please God so that he can save you? Or do you work from salvation? Folks, the gospel is not a theory. It's not just a theory. It is the core of our faith. It is the very center of our Christian identity. The gospel is not just some abstract Bible teaching for me personally. You see, I've experienced the power and the liberty found in the gospel. I grew up in a church that made me believe that I had to work to earn God's righteousness. That I was justified by my own deeds, which were never, ever good enough. I spent years working hard to gain God's approval. I ran myself ragged to do anything and every good thing I could find just in the hopes that God will be pleased and that he would be happy with me and then bless me. What was the end result of that, all that? After many years of self-salvation projects, the end result was burnout, spiritual burnout. And it led me into a season where I denied and defied the very God whose approval I craved in the first place. I was broken hopeless, depressed, and without purpose. I found myself going into things and actions to placate myself because I felt that I had disappointed God. You can't disappoint someone who's omniscient. It's impossible. In order to be disappointed, you have to be ignorant. God is never ignorant. He's omniscient. He knows it all. I felt that I disappointed him until I read God's Word until I understood the gospel and learned that what I had been working hard to earn was freely given in Christ. 
So when Paul speaks of God's power to rescue and God's provision to right us, I know that personally. I personally know the freedom that I found in gospel. The gospel, folks, set me free. Freedom from sin, yes. Freedom from the judgment, yes. But more than that, in the gospel, I had freedom to experience God's unconditional love. I experienced freedom to know that he made me right, that he justified me, and that he has brought me into relationship with him, not by my merits. I had freedom to experience his joy because of the work that Christ did on my behalf. You see, in the gospel, I found freedom to be who God has made me to be, and you can have that freedom too. The testimony of the Bible is clear and emphatic. There is a God. He is perfect and holy, and you and I have sinned against him. And sin has obscured our vision of him, our vision of ourselves. We think we are better than we are, and we think that we don't need God. But you can know him today. The good news is that he has made provision for your salvation and justification in Christ. You cannot earn it. It is the free gift of God if you would just trust him today. See, whether you've just heard the gospel for the first time or you've heard it for the hundredth time, let me encourage you to speak to God even now. You know, folks, as I was preparing this message yesterday, I was listening to one of my favorite newscasters and the anchor, she got up there and she started to talk about the loss that she's experiencing. She was mourning the death of a very close friend, someone who she said she loved dearly, means a lot to her. And as I started to think about this, because I'm human, I, I'm, I'm feeling that. I lost my aunt just a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, or weeks or so ago. So I, 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 can, I can empathize and sympathize with the feeling of mourning and losing someone. But she said something that was so pivotal. She says, as an atheist and an agnostic, she does not have the comfort of knowing that she will see him again. She says she doesn't have the comfort of knowing that he's in a better place. Because all she has is this world alone. And my heart broke for her more than it's breaking for the person who's died. That here she is acknowledging the futility of atheism and what it's like to not trust in something and someone beyond you. Because if this is all we have is this life, folks, I don't need to think about a hell. It's already been hell for many of us. This year alone has tested and tried many of us in ways that we never imagined. If this is all that there is, we should mourn for the dead. We should mourn for the living. And so as she spoke on about this, it caused me to realize afresh the goodness of the good news. That I have a hope in Christ that goes beyond this world. That when I die and I lay my head down, I don't have to worry about where I'm spending eternity because I'm spending it with the lover of my soul. Can you say that? Or if I were to lose my family today, my wife today, folks, I don't mourn that she's gone. I, I will miss the relationship. But I know that she is in a better relationship with God who loves her better than I could ever imagine to love her. You've got to figure out at some point, it might not be now, it might be tomorrow, and it might be too late. 
do you know where you will spend eternity? Have you rejected God and then his free promise of salvation? Do you stand in your own righteousness thinking it will save you? Better to figure that out now, this side of salvation, of eternity, than when it's all said and done. And maybe you're here, and maybe that has pricked your conscience, and you want to talk to God. Let me get out the way, and let me just simply help you if I could in this prayer. And maybe you would pray like this. Father, I hear the preacher man speak of you as a holy and perfect God. And the reality is, however good I am, I am not perfect. I have not deluded myself to think that I am perfect. And if truly you are God, would you reveal yourself to me? Show me who you are and show me who I am. I would bend a knee to accept your offer. Friends, if you pray that prayer, if you pray that prayer, we want to hear from you connect with you and see how we can serve you and walk with you. We're not special. We're not superhumans. As one preacher would say, we are beggars who found bread, who are simply just telling other people how to find bread. We are those who have received the free gift of God, and we are just telling you, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that you've spoken to him. Whether you're a Christian or maybe you just became a Christian, rely on the finished work of Christ. You have been saved from hell, from judgment, from sin, to a God, a Savior, who loves you more than you know. I have a few action steps to help us stick to the gospel. Perhaps you should read through the book of Romans. In fact, I would strongly encourage you read through the book of Romans. You can even listen through you version. And as you read, I want you to pray that God will open your eyes to see the truth of the gospel and also to see its implications for life in general. Secondly, I want to encourage you to rehearse and review the gospel daily to think about the gospel. As I said before, we never outgrow the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we grow into the gospel. Put it on your to-do list. Set yourself a reminder. Here are a few introspective questions that might help you rehearse and review the gospel daily. You may ask yourself, as I do from time to time, am I living in the righteousness of God or am I self righteous? Is my disposition that people see, is it that I'm better than them? Or maybe yet you can ask, am I more concerned about being right than I am about edifying people and strengthening people and showing grace and love, yes, in truth, to people? And thirdly, am I trying to earn people's approval? Is that what makes me tick? Is my desire to impress people or do I operate understanding that I already have God's approval because of the finished work of Christ? These questions, folks, I believe will help us stick to the gospel. Let me pray for our time. Father, it's been a joy, even for my own soul, 
to unpack the gospel. And in fact, Father, we could spend years unpacking the gospel and never fully understand what you've done for us in Christ. And so, Father, we surrender to you. Even now, all of our self-salvation projects, all of our self-righteousness, all of our arrogant dispositions that make it seem like we did you a favor. And we bend our knees to you, the God of all creation, realizing that it's even grace that you've kept us to this point. And for those of us who know you, we are thankful, Lord, that unlike that anchor, we have hope in a God who has saved us from an eternity of damnation and pain and suffering and exclusion from him. But that even now you beckon to us, return to your first love. Spirit of the living God, work in the hearts of your people as only you can. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.